Thank you very much, Marshall, and to everybody here at the Academy, uh, Amy Zoltzman especially, and uh, for uh, all the staff who make, uh, make it possible, and to the institution that so generously uh, supports the adventure. This is rather Gestapo-like this evening, with the uh, light for some reason or not because we don't, haven't done anything all that different. I think maybe it's because... Ah, uh, uh, yes, that's... Ah, yeah, that's, that's great. Much better. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks very much indeed. That, that's the trick. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful. Um, who, is, who is new to the review panel? Who's, who's here for the first time this evening? Ah, okay. Two or three. Marvellous. Four. Um, and of course, uh, uh, no less than half, half our panel are new as well. So, for their benefit as well, let me just run through our procedure. We've all gone to see uh, four current exhibitions. We're going to look at PowerPoint presentations of them in pairs to um, remind ourselves, refresh our memories of what we've all been long to see. Um, and then, after each um, presentation, um, there's some discussion of the shows um, among the panelists and a chance afterwards for the audience to let off a little steam and um, share their insights and probe the panel with their questions. Um, and let me also take the opportunity, as he's wandering around the room, to thank Graham White, who is our recording engineer. And... A round of applause for him, which shows that many of you have no doubt been sampling the uh, beautiful work he does at artcritical.com slash review panel, where we have uh, an archive of past panels. We're now about to conclude, I think, our seventh season, so um, something of an institution. We have become an institution within an institution, uh, always a good place to be. Well, actually, sometimes not. Anyhow, <laughs> my next and pleasurable task is introduce the panelists. Jeffrey Kastner is a senior editor at Cabinet Magazine and a regular contributor to Art Forum and other publications. Ariella Budik is the New York art critic for the Financial Times newspaper. And she is former art critic for Newsday here in the city. And uh, Colleen Asper is an artist and a curator and instigator of events. She runs, uh, she is the uh, co-founder of Ad Hoc Vox, um, a, 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 an organization that puts on panels, uh, probably more spike, spiky and spirited than the review panel, I imagine. Uh, uh, interventionist panels in various venues. Um, as an artist, Colleen has an exhibition opening at the Big Screen Project in New York on May 21st. And uh, as a writer, her works have been seen over the years in Art in America, The Brooklyn Rail, and artcritical.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Lovely, and let's see, let's, let's watch the, video, the uh, presentation of the first couple of shows. 
Josephine Mexapper introduced me to the Flag Art Foundation, which I wasn't uh, familiar with before. Rather, uh, uh, rather unsettling experience to see art of such strident politics on the on the left in in a space that would seem um, to have many of the trappings of the politics of the other end of the spectrum in its uh, corporate slickness. Um, did you have a similar sense of? Uh, Cognitive dissonance, perhaps, uh, Ariana? Um, well, I mean, I just I found the space to be kind of distracting. I mean, definitely corporate, and also, you're, you know, to have a view that like that to compete with the art. I mean, I noticed that in the photographs, they were all taken at night, so you can't see what you see at the window, which is quite beautiful urban landscape and. Mm. Uh, but the day I was there was really beautiful, and I kept gravitating towards the window mm. and not looking at the art. Um, so I was thinking it's definitely double-edged to mm. uh, have art in a space like that. And was it just the beauty of the uh, view that was distracting from the art, or was it perhaps the art itself <laughs> it was... <laughs> failing to help? Uh, yes, that as well. I, uh, I, I was not impressed particularly with, uh, with Jos- uh, uh, Josephine Mexepper's work. Um, I was not familiar with it uh, ahead of time, so I didn't you know, have any expectations. Right. Uh, but I thought it was um, very heavy-handed. Mm. Yes. Jeffrey, uh, Jeff, as I should call you, um, uh, how about you? Were you overly distracted by the view, or was there something compelling in the work? Um, there were things compelling in the work. I was d- distracted. I mean, it's the new Chelsea, right? I mean, you go into a very beautiful lobby and up into a glass high-rise, it's not the old Chelsea, it's not um, the kind of environment where um, one might have seen work 15 years ago in the city. Um, I struggled with the show, too, um, which is not to say I didn't like things about it, but I'm pretty sure they're not, that the things I liked about it would not have been the things that Max Supper would have necessarily wanted me to like about it. I agree it was heavy-handed. It was, you know, there's a, maybe a litmus test that I sometimes apply, like how long does it take you to describe the point of the show? And this one pretty much could be summed up in a sentence or two. There wasn't a lot of surplus. There wasn't a lot of enigma in it. It was pretty, um, I kind of thought quite an old-fashioned sort of critique, um, which I was not persuaded by necessarily. I'll make an exception for those three vitrines that were off by themselves in the other nook, which I thought... Um, did have some kind of surplus that was more interesting for me. They weren't so easy to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I did feel like, you know, that kind of, this kind of critique, of the, the idea that America is a consumerist society and cars are shiny and, um, uh, and that's a bad thing. I mean, I have some sympathy for that in the general sense, but I did feel like it was rather pedantically yes. put. Yes, yes. They are rather familiar, uh, very familiar tropes, aren't they? Both of uh, uh, Colleen, um, art coming from um, either the left or some sort of social critique, or also um, uh, the, 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 the finesse that they have. Uh, uh, you see that she's a student from, from CalArts. It really immediately triggers memories in my mind of um, Ashley Bickerton, as well as the more... Um, Obvious uh, connection to someone like Jeff Koons, but with um, without the humour uh, t- that I could make out. Um, are you going to uh, buck the trend here and, and give us a spirited defence of uh, Max Zeppelin? Well, I don't know if I'm going to buck the trend. I-, I agree that the work has a kind of um, 
easy consumerist sort of parable quality to it, right? Like we're supposed to look at that work and kind of draw a clear moral conclusion that capitalism is bad and um, consumerism is rampant. And I am completely 100% sympathetic to the politics of the work, but I feel like that that sort of um, straightforward critique isn't actually a very good critique of the, the politics of that work. I mean, for, I was interested in what you said, um, Jeffrey, about looking for kind of surplus and finding it in those vitrines because I had a similar experience. I was looking for the moment in the work where the associations build up to some kind of excess that wasn't ultimately recuperable right. in a, a kind of traditional capitalist sense. And for me, though, it didn't happen with the vitrines because those seem to me so clearly about art as commodity and as fashion. Mm. Uh, the piece that happened for me most in was the um, Thank a Vet piece, which I don't know if there was a great image of in the, the slides. But the, um, the associations in that work just got so strange for me between the sort of, there was a, a mannequin that had a Thank a Vet t-shirt on and then this um, like oh. sexy... Oh, right. Oh, Thank a Vet. Thank a Vet, <laughs> right. yes. That it, was in the foreground of one of the installation right, shots, yes. Right. There was a bath mat in it, too. Yeah. A bath mat, yeah. Toilet, uh, right. still in its plastic wrapper, a, right. a, a plunger, loo yeah, plunger, right. and uh, right. a scrubber. If, if you love liberty, thank a vet was on right. the... Uh, and there was a walker, too, or a, mm-hmm. a cane or yes, something. Yes, right. a walker. Yeah, I mean, there was just so many different... I mean, there's a clear political critique, critique in that work as well, but there were so many strange sorts of bodies that were invoked mm-hmm. that that, for me, took the work somewhere other than this very straightforward critique. Right. I, I have to say, I, I went to see it after the capture of Osama bin Laden. This was, I guess, yesterday mm-hmm. that I went to see it, and I found that events had completely inflected my mm-hmm. view of it. I felt like this sort of you know, flag dipped in oil, you know, bur- you know, this idea of sort of American imperialism. I mean, it, it took on a kind of an edge for me that I found rather unpleasant. I mean, it really irritated me, kind of in lieu of, of events. Um, I mean, they're definitely, I mean, the sort of the specter of Katie Nolan was very present, I thought, in a lot of that sort of, of, Kate, of the sort of specter of Katie Noland, I felt was quite sort of vivid in, in some of the kind of structures and the kind of critique of a certain mode of American consumption and uh, the way that gets turned back on itself. Um, I saw it right after I, the first time I saw it, I saw it right after I'd gone to see David Altmead's show. And it was interesting to think about other ways in which people have used these kinds of, uh, these mobilized these kinds of modes of display, uh, which David has done more in, in, in earlier work and less so in this current show. But again, it's like these questions of how you can play with these kinds of tropes of display and what you can do with them and what it means to put something in a certain kind of display environment and what it does to objects, what it does to the associations between the objects. So along with Kuhn's and you know, maybe Steinbach and maybe, uh, you know. But also it goes way back further than that. I mean, if you think of Richard Hamilton, the, the British pop artist, uh, doing uh, She and Chrysler Corp, uh, these sort of, mm. Uh, mm. which were just... Uh, they now look very handmade compared to the uh, high-tech uh, and, and impersonality of uh, Max Zepper's work. But um, the thing about Hamilton is that he was, uh, he was kind of 90% celebrating it. He was sort of 50% celebrating it, 50% critiquing it. And um, 
if we are all consumers, and she clearly, the artist, uh, loves to uh, spend time in hardware stores and um, ordering ordering stuff and getting things fin- uh, fabricated for her, and she produces um, potentially seductive surfaces. And uh, but um, it seemed to me actually very boring uh, and and prosaic uh, mm-hmm. selections of materials. It made you really appreciate both Bickerton for his. Uh, transgressive kind of humor and and Coons for his ambiguity you know, for that 50% liking and 50% yes. not liking which I is mean, there's, there's right. nothing there to like it's tacky trash right. um, and it's very poorly arranged I, could, I couldn't see any gestalt that was compelling in any of the arrangements of them so therefore it's not a critique of consumerism it's a, no, a rant against consumerism no, and it, but it's not just consumerism in general, at least, I didn't see it that way again. I mean, it could be the context in which I saw it, but I definitely saw it in American. I mean, the piece when you first come in Mm. is a a flag. It's an American flag, you know, which is mirrored and you're supposed to see yourself. So it's this kind of like, you Americans are so narcissistic. Mm -hmm. You Americans are such consumers. Mm. I mean, it was almost all, it was about American, you know, it was distinctly, it wasn't just a critique of consumption, it was a critique of America. And, America. A, and, a, and a male kind of, uh, it was a yeah, gendered kind gendered. of consumption too. I totally. thought it felt quite strongly a critique of yeah, a kind of male mode of the, consumption, this automotive culture. Yeah. Wait, does her, do you, do you agree, Colleen, there's an anti, uh, an inexplicable anti-Americanism? Is it just sort of dinner party chic socialism anti-Americanism? Or is, is there something... Uh, potent in the work about America? Uh, you began that with inexplicable, and I would say it was very explicable. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes. it, that seemed to me even more clear, even more linear of a kind of straight critique than, than the consumerist one. Mm. And I mean, again, I drifted towards the works that were a little bit more opaque. Like, I, I also thought the, um, the video, the mm-hmm. cracked screen mm-hmm. with the static, right. that was another piece that... It was a real outlier in terms <laughs> yeah, of the show right. in a lot of ways, yeah. Yes, there was a, uh, just to try to accentuate the positive, there was in the, as you say, Jeff, the, the three vitrines to the side, the one including African Spear mm-hmm. and um, uh, I can't remember the titles of the others, but they, uh, they I wouldn't dare invoke the name Cornell in, uh, in relation to them, but they at least had um, the potential of, of something poetic and um, uh, something to do with desire. I mean, it was, it was a strange abnegation of any kind of consumer desire mm. in um, canvases from Blick with plastic around them still and um, uh, the, the sort of tchotchkes um, kind of heraldically displayed in those strange vitrines and boxes. Mm. Yeah, it was um, sort of repelled desire. It was very cold, mm, really, and kind mm. of repulsive. And then the politics of the catalogue. I mean, there, there, were, there were some fascinating uh, pieces of writing. I mean, uh, Stephen Roach's uh, uh, economic prognostication was a bit depressing, uh, but the, and the Guy Cassidy on the Opium Wars was mm-hmm. a fascinating history, but it seemed, um, it, it seemed actually something sophomoric in, in bringing together like a, a dossier, a cahier of uh, unequivocal, um, angry uh, critiques of American consumption of oil, and, uh, and then these, um, these works. It made the works, as if they weren't already, redundant, hmm. obsolete. Hmm. Well, I'm ready to be, 
to be shouted down by the panel, but it seems, um, I, I can't recall exactly, I remember her name was on several lists, so I think there must have been some sense of enthusiasm for earlier work. Were you all familiar with earlier work? I've seen work? bits yeah. and pieces of it, um, and I am interested in this idea of choosing things and the potential, I mean, and I do think there are people who do it in interesting ways. You think of Carol Bove, you think of Altmead, there are people who have... I think, um, do find some kind of potential for poetry and, and a little humor. This was very humorless work. There was humorless, no, not a moment. Yes. Of, My goodness. Of, uh, the Thank the Vet one was totally funny. Which one? The one the that I... The of thank, one? thank of Vet. You think so? I yeah. think there was you totally funny. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I... The, the, the thing with the ties and the sort of mask, you know, that masculine thing that you were mm -hmm. talking about, it made me think of, I don't, can't remember the name of the artist now, but um, at the Whitney, the one who did the, um, the clothes and the little sculpture. Oh, uh, yes, uh, Charles Ledre. Charles Ledre, yeah. Uh, mm. um, oh, I yeah. But the, the, there are two, it was sort of about masculinity and about, you know, and, the, and men's clothing and kind of, you know, alternative masculinities. And I thought it made a very kind of interesting and striking counterpoint mm. to this show because they're both kind of about the same thing, except he's so much more subtle and, yeah. you know... Layered and personal and, and, and... I mean, everything that this wasn't. Really. Exactly. And also the craft in, in Le Dre yeah. is uh, fantastically sure. significant. The way... The, 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 mid, the scale, the craft, the... Humor. Uh, humor, the, mm -hmm. also, but also the poignancy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I put them at very extreme opposites of a sort of scale of sensibility and... And political subtlety as well. Mm. I mean, I think uh, Ledre's explorations of sexual identity as uh, as well as um, gender identity, um, sexuality as well as gender identity, very very thought provoking. And, and he, he had a piece also that was sort of a veteran. I can't mm. remember what it was, but it, exactly. But I think there was it was an outfit with a kind of you know. Love the troops, you know, mm -hmm. peace and um, very kind of working class. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it also explored some of that same terrain, but in a yes. But way. his his is always from from the point of view of a working class male, uh, from uh, and uh, his explorations with his father. I mean, so it's 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 uh, uh, this I think there's not much that's judgmental. I don't think he has any judgmentalism going on, whereas I think it, uh, uh, it's, it's, not, it's barely contained in anything that uh, Max has given us so far. Yeah. Mm. And I, just to, to be clear in responding to what you just said, David, I mean, the, the fact that the work sets itself up to be a very pointed critique and to not have the sort of 50-50 of um, Jeff Koons, which would mm -hmm. you know, be very like a la Warhol, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can read the work in both ways. I don't find that a problem in the work. I just think the critique itself is not effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, if it was simply uh, saying our rampant consumerism makes... Uh, ridiculously extravagant use of oil, and we um, are, uh, you know, the, the people are dying every day as a result of our greed. Then uh, the way to do that would, I'd have thought, be to show the suffering of the people who are dying. But by exploring only the 
um, beauty or the allure of consumerism, um, and to do it in a way that's thoroughly unbeautiful and unalluring, um, falls very uh, badly flat. And um, uh, so that's the problem with it. I mean, I, I guess I read it a little bit differently. I don't think it's um, about ex- you know, exploring consumerism in quite that way. I think of it in terms of this is like an oft-quoted line of Marx that I'm just paraphrasing, but something to the effect of um, you know, only under capitalism can the greatest work of art be rated alongside so many tons of manure. Right? The idea there being an economic system is one that levels everything because you can put a price on anything. And there's a kind of perversity in that line, right? Like the idea of imagining a work of art next to how many tons of manure to equal that work of art in terms of price. And I think there's the potential for that perversity in her work, right? In the way that she's just choosing these objects and butting them up against one another, objects that may come from totally different um, you know, social spheres, like painting versus, you know... Uh, tchotchke, right, and just putting them next to one another, but it's for me, the only piece that that, or pieces that that really started to happen in, in a way that truly felt perverse and strange, was that the one piece that, the, the thank of that that I keep mentioning, and then the video as well. Well, um, so then, I, I, now we move to some oil, and some um, alluring objects, objects of desire and objects with a price on them that may or may not correlate to the uh, price of manure. But uh, Julia Jacquette, is she offering us, uh, what, what does she offer the eye, uh, Jeff? Were you, um, what, were the, what were the compensations and prices for the aesthetic experience that uh, um, Julia Jaquette office. Well, an interesting thing about Julia's work is that um, we actually put her on the cover of the last issue of Cabinet, the, mm. one of these hair paintings. Right. And so for weeks prior to the show opening, I was living with those works in super high-res photographic images on my computer as we were trying to make a decision about which image to use. And it was interesting to go and actually see them as paintings because there is such a kind of dialogue between photography and painting in them, and to see them for so long as photographs did have this quite strong effect on the way I imagined them. Um, They are emphatically paintings despite having very uh, light surfaces. They're very, you know, they're very carefully painted, but they're they're clearly paintings. And... um, I like the work. I like I like the relationship between painting and photography in them. I like that she set herself difficult things to paint. I like that these are not these are quite sort of quicksilver things to capture. And I'm I have an affinity for that kind of taxonomic, you know, typological project where she has found a thing and is, you know, it's like. Thibaut crossed with kind of super realist as this kind of painting and I do I, I have a lot of sympathy for that project I'm interested in looking at the sort of repetition of images and seeing what that does um, she's obviously a very technically skilled painter yes um, so for me it was just very interesting to come in and encounter these thing as pa- things as paintings after having in some sense experienced them as photographs for as long as I had um, yes yes that's, that's fascinating because Clearly, the relationship to the photographic is axiomatic, but it seemed to me that with, with the way in which uh, uh, realist painting 
using photography as an expedient has, has become so uh, pervasive in paint practice, it, it was uh, refreshing and um, stimulating for me, uh, Ariella, to get more familiar with Jacquette's painting because she seems to belong fairly squarely in my mind in the, the good camp of people who um, work with the photograph to create something that has a sort of the forms of things unknown about them, that uh, uh, it's something, it's, it's an observation that couldn't arise simply from looking at, in a naturalistic way, a woman's hair or uh, a glass of bourbon, and yet it's not um, enslaved to photography, it gives us something that's sort of uniquely painterly. Were you having that sort of sensation? Yes, yes. I, is that too loud now? You know, okay. <laughs> um, can hear it echoing back. So, um, yeah, I thought the work was very sensual and uh, quite beautiful and appealing. Uh, I like your analogy with Tebow. What did you say, Tebow and Estes, a cross mm-hmm. regime? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, she before she did these, she did a series of um, from in, interior magazines. Like mm. um, she did. Uh, Stuff from dwell, like dwell, and you know, artificial digest and stuff like that. And before that, she did food. Right. So right. she chooses things that she herself is attracted to and desires, and at the same time, is sort of distancing herself from her own desire. And her work is about that kind of play, I think, between sort of or that suspicion that you have of your own desires. Like when you go into a store and you see a bag or a pair of shoes, and you think, you know, do I really need those? Is my house closet big enough for them? You know, is it? that kind of, the ambivalence of consumption and the sort of, the urge and the retreat from it. So I felt like all that tension was there. In and when work. we actually talked, uh, as we were putting together the issue, she said precisely that, that this is a way for her to sort of deal with her feelings toward these things, toward this perfect hair that you see, like, movie stars and newscasters. I think only someone with frizzy hair can really identify with that <laughs> desire. Maybe that's why I felt Because I knew what she was talking about. Well, let me ask the panelists with the most straight hair I've seen all week. Uh, yeah, I'm really against curls, so I just dismissed the work out of hand. Um, no. Actually, though, I, I do, not because of my hair. Um, want to be the odd man out on this one. I had a really hard time with this show. Actually, probably the hardest time with this of all the work that we looked at. Um, I mean, for one, I didn't find that the paintings themselves to be, I think in the press release they're described, or she, her painting is described as, you know, in terms of its virtuosoness. I really didn't find that at all. I thought they were just like competent photorealist paintings. And I'm also really confused about how photorealism is being employed in the work. I mean, it seemed to me that photorealism in its inception anyway in the you know, late 60s and early 70s was about removing the artist's hand and creating this emphasis on mediation. But what I kept thinking about when I looked at those works is how you could both have the reference to something really attractive in a very banal way, right, like curly hair, something we're used to seeing all the time, widely circulated in advertising. You could have that pleasure at the same time as you could have something that was like handmade and, you know, a painting object that had that sort of preciousness to it. So to me, it just seemed like, um, you know, like two forms of kind of really banal um, commodity to 
maybe to relate it to the conversation we were just having about Josephine's work, just folded on top of one another. Uh, the, I mean, Ariella, when you mentioned the food paintings that she did, these, for people who aren't familiar with the work, they're paintings of food that have text on top of them that invokes the body in some way. So they seem to be making really literal, like, the fact that food photography is so often a kind of form of pornography. And that, to me, is really interesting, that work. Like, it's funny, it takes something that's subtextual and makes it surface. But I feel like with this work, it was just taking, you know, one very surface read of advertising with another very surface read of painting and then coupling the two of them together, not really creating any tension or friction between them for me. Okay. I, I, for me, they, um, you, you mentioned photorealism and its inception in the 60s, which is a, a good, you know, historical instance. But um, it's an instance on a, on a very long trajectory that goes right back to the Impressionists looking at photography and artists like uh, Sickert using photography right the way through to um, artists in the, of the 80s and 90s, whether I say uh, Richard Phillips, for instance, or uh, the Canadian Lisa Milroy, kind of um, making images that couldn't happen without photography, but making those images in order to uh, reinvigorate painting in some way and to produce something that is painterly, but in, not in the, in the sense of impastoed and expressive, but painterly in the sense of this is uh, an image that could exist in no other medium, that as a photograph, it would give us some information, but it wouldn't give us a sensation. And if it was a naturalistic painting, it would give us the sensation, but not the information. And so for me, it's the, the intersection of those two that invigorates these works. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I thought they were, um, as I said, I mean, especially that one of the, of the drink, um, the one of the glass of scotch sort of thing. Yes. That was my favorite, even though it was sort of the least abstract of all of them. Mm-hmm. It really did make me want to <laughs> take that drink. Like, I looked at it and I found it extremely, like, you know, if I were hung, if I were thirsty, it would spark my thirst. Like, I found it was very, um, that my response to it was very immediate, but also, um, there's something very creamy about the surfaces, and mm. there's six. I found particularly that one extremely seductive. Um, so, like the, the the birds in those ekphrastic poems who were pecking at the grapes, that was <laughs> realistic, who were um, getting thirsty looking at that painting. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not a deep painting. I mean, I don't think the work is really deep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I personally don't detect much of a consumerist critique no. I mean, or the sense of it. Um, even being about uh, necessarily about um, consuming these things, I think there. I think she finds. I think she's found things that she's interested in painting as an exercise in the technique of painting. And it. it, it I didn't think it was a deep show, um, <laughs> but I did think that she chose. She set herself things that were interesting things to paint and to try to paint them, and particularly things that. Um, did operate in that sort of zone that you're talking about, David, where they're neither quite photographic nor quite painterly, but they do have this kind of, they do find a space in between those two modes of representation, I think, in, in a successful way. Yeah, I would just add to that. I mean, this is sort of going a little beyond, but you know, one thing that all four artists have in common that we're talking about tonight is they all use reflection and light um, in their work. And I really was drawn to the way she uses light and you know, it's a photographic way, 
it comes. I mean, there are paintings, painters like Vermeer who sort of use it a little bit that way, but that kind of um, reflectivity that you see in, in not only commercial photography, but you know, art photography. And then she sort of projects it back in a painting. And I thought that was interesting, that kind of, you know, it's, it's an aesthetic mode that she transposes from technology back into a sort of handmade thing in a very craftsmanly sort of way. And I thought that was cool. Yeah, I, think, I can think of a lot of photographers who I feel like are doing some of what we're describing here. Someone like um, Josh Brand or Mariah Robertson who are really playing with photography that is exploring abstraction and exploring it in a way that's all about abstraction as it's been explored in painting. Or Marilyn, Min- Marilyn Minter, maybe? Is she a <clears throat> point of comparison? I like that work even less. <laughs> okay. Marilyn Minter. I, um, yeah, I mean, actually, Marilyn Minter is a great point of comparison for this show, though. That's what I mean, yes. yeah. Yes. No, but I mean, in, in terms of some of the photographers that I was thinking about, um, I wouldn't quite equate her work with them. But oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 no. So, so the photographers are doing that you mentioned. You feel are going uh, deeper into the painterly than than Jacquette is into the photographic. Yeah, or to the painterly either. I or, feel like she remained uh, very shallowly on the surface of both. I mean, the the, the the sort of effect that she achieves in the way that she's working from photographs, where the color um, breaks down into these like very clearly defined kind of shapes. So if, you know, that's something that anybody who's ever painted from a photograph will immediately notice and. I don't know, they just seem to me very familiar, run-of-the-mill photorealism. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does the audience feel about the two shows we've looked at so far, then, Max Separ and Jacquette? Um, we've got a roving mic, if you'd be kind enough to wait for that so that we can get you on the recording and we'll be sure to hear you. But um, uh, we won't necessarily divide it up between the two, so just... Whoever you want to talk about, Max Seppa or Jacket. Um, it'd, be, it'd be great to hear some, some feedback from the... Yes, thank you. Just behind you. Uh, I was um, curious about the backstory um, of the uh, Flag Art Foundation. Um, there was, at the same time, the uh, um, exhibit of the uh, Richter paintings. Mm, mm-hmm. upstairs. Um, which is not under discussion here, but had been shown recently at Marion Goodman. And actually, I think several of the um, Mech Sepper pieces uh, had been in the uh, recent Elizabeth uh, D. show. Uh, but I was curious what the backstory was with the uh, Flag Foundation. I mean, is, is it not mentioned because everybody knows? or? I didn't mention it because I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I was able to find out a little bit about it. The, the Sun wrote, the late lamented Sun, uh, when it first opened in um, January 2008, the Flag Art Foundation, a space for contemporary art founded by collector Glenn Furman, who is a co-managing partner and co-founder of Michael Dell's investment firm, MSD Capital, Michael Dell being... Dell Computers. Um, the, the Flag Foundation will open its inaugural show tomorrow at its 7,600 square foot space in two floors of the 19 million Chelsea Arts Tower. Uh, the Foundation's inaugural show is curated by artist Chuck Close and features works by around 50 prominent contemporary artists. Uh, Mr. Furman is a collector of Mr. Close's work. Uh, and it's interesting 
he does not, um, if you go on the website of the uh, Flag Foundation, uh, I'm pretty sure that his name doesn't appear, uh, so it had to be teased out, but uh, it, it, it's interesting. It says they are willing to speak to curators, but they are booked uh, very uh, uh, far in advance, so it sounded like no need to apply. I just <laughs> thought that the yes. choice of next Sepper was... It also, excuse me, I think it also says that all of the art is from private collections. So it's not a gallery, but it's almost like a chamber of commerce. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the, 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 uh, what I was able to find, find out about it uh, analogized it to uh, Saatchi, for example, and, uh, and the relating issues. Yes. Uh, thank you for doing that research. I was intrigued, and I had that, as I say, as I opened the, we opened the discussion with the possible thought of a disconnect between somebody of such strident and unequivocal um, anti-capitalist um, sentiment in the work, uh, gravitating as quickly as possible to clearly some, some serious private money. But... Um, <coughs> It, 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 it's also interesting, I mean, it comes out that uh, simultaneously this Glenn Furman, this wasn't his only uh, real estate coup because he uh, bought the uh, Park Avenue um, uh, apartment uh, that um, Fuld, what was his first name from uh, Lehman Brothers? Richard. Uh, had, uh, Richard Fuld uh, had bought but never moved into and uh, he... Um, well, anyway, we don't, we, don't, we don't think the man should be out in the street, but, uh, you know, good for him. I, I, I I'm, not, uh, I'm not as quite as uh, thoroughgoing a Marxist as Mexapa, so I don't mind his having a, a, a two-story a two uh, private art gallery and, and owning a, a nice place on Park Avenue, but, uh, yeah, but... I think it's important to be clear, though, that her work is about that. I mean, that makes... Com whether or not I think the work is interesting or successful aside, I mean, it, that... I can't imagine a better context for that work, right? I mean, the canvases, the store-bought stretchers that have the, you know, luxury cars in them, like that gesture is the same as showing in that space. So it doesn't seem to me... Do you think, think she's in some she's way critiquing, critiquing the space? Yeah, totally. No. I mean, I think that's a huge part of what that work is about, is the, like, the conflation of different sorts of commodities. But, 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 Colleen, she made the work. It was bought by this foundation. She, no, but she, now she curated the, the show. Just, just, to be, just to be clear, according to the checklist, which I brought along with me, all of the work is from the collection of the artist and courtesy Elizabeth D. and two other galleries, her galleries in London and Berlin. So I don't believe, this is not like a private museum where this fellow is private public museum where he's created which is the trend by you know this is not a new thing but it's it's hot these days um, it, where somebody creates a non-profit foundation in order to uh, show work that they already own mm -hmm. this does not appear to be the case with this work for whatever okay. it's worth that's a very very useful correction thank you so so then but did she make the work for this show do we think that would be crucial for your point, wouldn't it? Oh, no, I mean, I'm not saying that the work was made to critique the space. I'm saying that, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if the show had been Elizabeth D, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that seems equally, um, you know, a, a 
that it would make equal sense for the work, that the work is about how intertwined art and commodity are, so essentially right? So to point out to the, the fact that like this space is somehow like complicit in capitalism, that's like that's already what the work is. Essentially, anywhere she would have shown it in Chelsea, the same thing would have obtained, right? Right. I mean, and she's played with that for in right. shows in the past, like right. having four or higher signs in the gallery windows. I right. mean, the way that the lighting was changed in that space to be the sort of garish fluorescent lighting. Right. Just I, you know. Yes, with those light strips on the floor. Right. Okay. Uh, any, any more on, on, on Meg Zeppa or, uh, or Jaquette? Painters in the audience? Got anything to tell us about Jaquette? Yes, please wait for the mic. Um, I just wanted to say I'm delighted with your reviews of these two shows. We, a few of us went yesterday to kind of comb, you know, see them. And um, very similar on the... Um, Okay, Mac, how do you say? Mexepper. Mexepper. We all, we, many words you said, we all said masculine. You know, what is this? And uh, it, so uh, it's, a, it's nice to hear because I think as painters, you go, you know, and you look at different art and you try and suss out why are they there. I think Jaquette, as a, we all thought as a painter, I shouldn't say we, but I did, uh, as a painter, she was technically excellent. And it's funny you didn't mention her on the tarmac. Oh, that was... Mm-hmm. Which yeah. we all... I mean, I, I personally thought that was her best painting as it, it worked somehow with that, her glazing and her reflections on that as a painter. And the other... And, and one thing, question I had is when you see an um, exhibit like that, it, do you like to see all of a piece? Because to me it was very, you know, okay, curls and okay, a tarmac and, you know, do you then look at her... How do you look at that? That would be my only question, but otherwise I pretty much agree with all of you. Uh, sure, anyone wish to answer? I'm not sure quite what the question was, but do you... Well, do you I mean, when I, when I went in and I looked at the curls, for instance, I mean, I did have to... I kind of walked in, I walked out, because it was sort of, you know, like you say, they all very much looked the same at first, and, and to sort of get yourself to just look at one and not five was, you know, is is hard in a show like that, especially in such a small space. Um, so yeah, I tried, I, would, I looked at them, then I went out, then I came back in, then I looked at the other side of the room and didn't look at, you know, there are various, I'm sure you use the same strategies to kind of distance yourself from the... Right, well I think uh, it'd be good to move on now and look at the, the next the slides of the next two shows. So, Into the Dollhouse, Colleen. Uh, Sigurdar Dotir. <laughs> I think the panel has unanimously agreed ahead of time that we're going to call her Katrine. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I had to ask the guard at some point where the work was, and I was like, Katrine, so no. <laughs> they knew exactly what I was <laughs> Um I was really excited about seeing this show just for the simple reason that I love period rooms and particularly the period rooms at the Met. I think there's uh, something so fascinating about the way that they allow you to be a voyeur into a different kind of time without actually giving you a figure. So many instances of voyeurism are kind of premised on the figure. So for that reason, I was really excited about this show. Um, For me, there were two 
installations, right, the one that was the enclosed room and the one that was the sort of folded architectural labyrinth. The enclosed room was much more successful for me in terms of evoking the that sense of both being able to project yourself into a space and also being unable to actually enter the space that the period room provides because of the way she used uh, the, the surveillance cameras and the mirrors. <clears throat> also materially, the fact that the, the space uh, was kind of drained of its color. I mean, the obvious reference there would be minimalism. So there was this sense that this historic space was being given a kind of modernist facelift, and that was interesting to me. Um, also, the fact that everything was in white made it feel like a kind of proposal or a model for a space, which is another strange play with time, because the proposal or model always points to the future, right, rather than the past. So for all those reasons, I felt like that piece was really fascinating for me. Um, I was a little I, less interested or felt a little less um, taken with the, the folded architectural space, and for me it was just a material problem. The um, the way it was fabricated uh, in wood, everything was kind of flattened, and it didn't have the um, the seductive materiality that an actual period room space does. But it also didn't transform it to a totally different material. Like I kept thinking about, what if it was made out of paper or something that spoke more to reproduction rather than construction? So I was I was. If, looking at images of that second space, I think it holds up equally as well, but being in the presence of it, I right. felt like there was something materially off. This is a Russian doll sensation, wasn't there, Ariel, slightly with the diminishing scale of the uh, more open one. Uh, did you um, uh, derive much benefit from the show? Oh, yeah, I, I, I really liked it, and the more I thought about it afterwards, the more it, it grew on me. I mean, the more I... Because I really did think about it a lot afterwards. It was one of those things that... I kept trying to tease out what she was getting at with it. And, mm. and not just the, you know, there's sort of the immediate sort of interactive experience you have with, with both of them. I mean, the, you, you're involved in both. One in, is a presence and the other is an absence. So in mm. one, you're sort of going through it and you're looking at other people go through it. And it's kind of like being in Alice in Wonderland. I mean, that was my, I felt like she was invoking childhood and children love period rooms. They're like mm. their favorite part of the museum. I mean, I've heard that. Did you, like me, feel a bit guilty for not being in Rococo costume? <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't feel guilty about that. Um, but yeah, then I thought about it afterwards, and I just um, I thought about what she was trying to say about period rooms, and, you know, especially that thing you were talking about with the... Um, you called them surveillance cameras. Were there actually cameras in the work? I know there were... Or there surveillance glass, like mirrors. Two-way glass. Right. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Um, you know, the that, two-way mirrors, so right. we could look through them as Right, but not see things. ourselves. Like, that yes. was the thing that was so disturbing about it, is that in the room, you, you can look in the mirror and you see your own reflection, but in the, in the other one, you look in the mirror and you see nothing. So it mm-hmm. erases you completely, mm-hmm. which is very weird and disconcerting. And I didn't even realize at, at first that that's what was happening. Well, it wouldn't be able to function uh, uh, if they were, if the mirrors worked as mirrors, would they? I mean, if you if you could see your reflection in it, it would just be a cacophony. It would be a mess, and I don't. Also, yeah. how how would you be able to see into it? But in the other work, there are mirrors. The in one the that's opened one. up, exactly. And yes. you do see yourself, and you, you see other people, and you see the their reflections as they pass yes. through the space. So, it it erases the people. Yes. Um, 
and turns and turns them into ghosts <clears throat> or you know some something creepy and yes. um, vampires. <laughs> so you can't see your reflection. I mean, I have some other thoughts, but I want to. I don't yes, want to just. Absolutely, Jeff. Um, uh, yeah, I, I like Katrine's work, and I've seen a fair amount of it. I, I have to say, my, the most vivid, somewhat sadly, the most vivid uh, um, thing that I took away from the time that I saw it was how odd and misbegotten the Met is as a place to see contemporary art. Um, after wandering through these amazing soaring spaces and looking at, you know, these wonderful, you know, light and air, then you have to like you go into like these places where you think they like store the table linens for the trustees' dinner or something. <laughs> And um, I, that was, I felt a little bad about that, even though I know the work doesn't really need air and space and light around it because it was very in, interior directed. Um, both of these kinds of moves for her are moves she's sort of made before. Um, that kind of interior, that room within a room structure is something that I've seen from her before. And in fact, that winding, sort of diminishing uh, architectural space is. Um, also something uh, that I've seen her do before. I, I like the work. I like the way that the scale shifts um, change your relationship to to landscape, and that's what she's interested in. You, maybe people may have seen this, I think, probably what was her most famous work in New York, which was the thing you stuck your head up in at PS1, and you climbed up a ladder, and you stuck your head through a hole, and there was this kind of Icelandic landscape with these sort of mountains and... Um, so she's very interested in landscape, and when I first met her, she was making boxes with little tiny sort of diorama landscapes in her. And she's very interested in this question of scale and, and the relationship of the body to both architectural environments and natural environments. Um, I, I agree that, I, that the room, I thought, was more successful. Um, the technical qualities of it were quite confusing in a, a kind of exciting way. It took, I looked at it for a long time. Uh, before I had, the, I I had a, a flashback to the uh, penultimate scene of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey where he has the dream sequence and he's mm. wandering through this very white <coughs> room. What did we make, uh, Ariella, of the whiteness of that room? Oh, well, I, I thought about that afterwards and then I looked up um, the history of the room, the actual room in the, chate- in the um, hotel and uh, they think that during the revolution the walls had been whitewashed to protect the mm. boisserie um, because it survived, the, I think the room was commissioned in the in the 1740s or something like that, and or even a little earlier, and then it, it survived the war, and um, was pretty much intact up until 1905 when they were tearing the building down, 1904 to make way or you know emptying it out to make way for the ho- hotel, um, Creon, and um, at that point it was rescued by some New York collector and brought to, uh, I think it was a Park Avenue apartment where it was for a while and then eventually came to the Met. But the whiteness, I thought, was, um, you know, I I was trying to think, like, how was she invoking the actual room? Because then you go down and you look at the space and you sort of see the real thing and then you see her sort of version of it and why does she make it, you know, she makes it smaller and whitens it. And the scale thing isn't something you see right away. It's kind of... um, I mean, you, you experience scale in the open one, but the smaller one, it's only when you sort of think, like, oh, if I sat on that chair, I'd be sitting on the floor, or if I, right. you know, that it, you sort of feel right. it. And then you go to the real room, and it is small. I mean, it's, it's smaller than a room would be now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, so there's a kind of historical dimension to it, too. And I thought that the white 
was an invocation of that, at least to a certain extent. I think it's interesting to think about the relationship between these pieces and the original period rooms. I agree with Colleen. I really love the period rooms. There's something really uncanny about them and that kind of question of access and, and the refusal of access. But I had gotten it into my mind early on, like when I heard she was going to do the show and it was a, something involving the period rooms, I had gotten this mistaken notion in my mind that she was actually going to be allowed to like intervene in the actual period rooms. And when I came, I went to the museum with my daughter and I wasn't entirely clear where the projects were. And so we went first to the period rooms thinking that they were going to be in the rooms. Yeah. Um, and this, that relationship was... Um, a little lost on me going to see the pieces and then going, I didn't go, I went and saw the pieces and then I went and saw the rooms. I didn't go back to see the pieces again and I wonder about that, like, seeing the room before the project or the project before the room, how yeah, that the changes. Order, it does change and then you, and if you go back, like, so I went to see the room and then I went back and then I went to look at some of the other period rooms and that thing about being excluded from the room mm-hmm. is actually not true about all of them or it's, no. it's mitigated. I mean, in some of the English the ones, yeah, the, the Lansdowne dining room, you can actually go into the room. You can't touch the dining room table, but you can go in. And the Frank Lloyd Wright, you can really penetrate. And, and, mm. and then the Ameri- in the American wing, mm-hmm. you, they have these um, computers now that are sort of, they're touch screens. And you can actually, you know, you put your hand in and you can touch the different items and stuff comes up. So that's the sort of virtual entry into the room. So there are all these different layers of um, permeability that the rooms have. And and I thought that she was kind of playing with that, you know, the fact that... Because period rooms do have this kind of nostalgic quality. I mean, they're something that, you know, you think of as a child and that also, you know, why are they in American museums? It's like they're there because a certain generation of Americans were trying to figure out how, how to live, you know, how to... Um, and who they were. Who they right. were, you and know, what it meant to have taste, you know, what their money, what they could buy with their money. Uh, and it was before the era of travel. It was they, they sort of... The, the, the apex of the period room was sort of 1920 to 1970 or so. And a lot of museums mm-hmm. have been selling off their period rooms. There's also a great triumph of the museum, isn't it? Because you don't just... You can't just... You don't just collect objects or pictures, you can have the whole room, or in the case of the cloisters, you can have a whole cloister, you can have a whole monastery, um, a whole facade. Um, Yeah. Um, But, uh, Colleen, um, what did did you make of the whiteness of that sealed room? Was there something ghostly or abstracting or um, high-tech about it? Well, um, I think how I began talking about the work in terms of the whiteness both making me think of modern art and the whiteness making me think of this idea of like a proposal or something that would take place in the future was my kind of primary connection with the whiteness. I didn't do the the research that you did, Ariella, but I do find that fascinating. I'm sure there are many, 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 many associations that one could make without whiteness. I mean, I liked its open-endedness. Um, but yeah, I, I guess just to respond to what you said, Jeff, I also really wish that if not actually in the period room, um, if the work was not actually in the period room, at least could have been in the same space if you could have walked from one right. to the next, because I found it really hard to move from floor to floor and, and keep that, um, the impression intact. 
Did you think that the work was critical of period? Like, no. did you see it as critical mm. or at all? No. Coming from Mech Sapper, I couldn't see anything as critical. Because <laughs> <clears throat> I was wondering what her attitude, you know, because she has this thing about, you know, keeping you out and how the rooms keep you out. And I thought, mm. it seemed like she was sort of saying that, that kind of, that there's something wrong with that. That, that a museum that invites you in and, and then stops you at hmm. the door and, you know, that, that she had a problem with that. And that, especially the room that, um, the one that was self-contained was hmm. a kind of, and then the, the vocation of surveillance yeah. hmm. and voyeurism, you know, that, that there was a sort of a critique of you for liking period rooms. Or well, certainly something. voyeurism, right? Yeah. And for me, that sense of voyeurism is most intact when you can't enter the room. I mean, I actually, when I'm able to walk through a period room, I'm very conscious of myself as just like me walking in the Met and seeing other people walking in the Met. But that barrier is what makes me feel that sense of voyeurism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, and then just another thing about sort of what you were saying. I mean, I'm not sure what you said that made me think of this, but one of the objects in the actual period room Belonged to, or belonged to Marie Antoinette. It was like a, a chair that has her um, initials on it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I thought, you know, is she saying something about, like she chose this room with this piece of furniture. Like is she saying something about, you know, this is what comes to all of you who value these objects, you know. She, Marie Antoinette only got to enjoy it for a few short years before, you know. I thought that there was a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> a ominousness to it. Yeah, I guess just thinking about the history of her work, it always seems so playful to me mm-hmm. and so much about, um, you know, just creating these strange, absurd spatial plays that it just, that this work seemed to me completely in keeping with that. I liked the um, contrast, the sort of diptych of the, the open and the closed, but... Um, it seemed to me that actually the, the mood and the message, not that I could specify what the message necessarily is, but the, uh, the whole um, pervasive sort of meaning of the two um, installations was, was very different. I mean, it's not as if they were... I mean, the, the open-closed is a dichotomy, but the other difference seemed to me that they were uh, following entirely different uh, artistic agendas, uh, the, the one being about looking, and the other really being more about space. Um, yeah, I mean, there is that kind of line of argument that comes from, you know, people like Susan Stewart. I don't know if you know this book, On Longing, which is this wonderful book about the miniature and the gigantic, and she makes this argument that the miniature is really about interiority and about looking inward, and the gigantic is about a kind of externalization. And so you could maybe make an argument that both of these things are, and both of these projects were in some sense about yourself in relation to these things in one case because you are a voyeur and there's a space you can't enter and another because you're an intruder in a space that you can dominate and Mm -hmm. and be a master of in a way Um, a Gulliver-like way right there's something definitely I felt very strongly this feeling of kind of childhood this evocation Mm -hmm. of childhood that it was sort of the way a child it's sort of like a dollhouse mm-hmm. it's and it's the way a child kind of experiences the world as these kind of and especially as a child grows you know like it happens in Alice in Wonderland you know in this very dramatic way but 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 that's what childhood is about is that you you go to sleep one side and then you you know you wake up a little bit bigger the next day and then you know the next day after that you're a little bit bigger and so you are 
your sense of the world is always changing, and that way that you know there's the little doorway, and then it gets bigger, and then it gets bigger. It's kind of you know your relation to the world is so mm. fl- fluctuating, and so I felt a like very strong spirit of of mm. childhood in in both of them. Well, let's let's <laughs> um, let's seize this uh, Marie Antoinette Rococo sensibility and take it to Union Square with a silver uh, statue <clears throat> of Andy. <laughs> um, we're having to get used to Mr. Pruitt as, as an agent provocateur. Um, Jeff, has he pulled it off with Andy? Um, well, I mean, it is public art, so sight is an important thing. And, the, and aside from the fact that it is very perfectly located between these two late locations of the factory and the Decker building and at 860 Broadway. For me, the most interesting thing was that it was actually located on one of these Bloombergian pedestrian strips that have been showing up around the city, uh, where people are sitting and having their coffee at these blue tables with green umbrellas or green tables with blue umbrellas. I can't remember which. Um, and it's a very different kind of city, very different kind of uh, uh, world in terms of energy uh, and the kind of conditions of living in the city now than it certainly was during, um, during Andy's time. Um, you know, I, I think it's a perfectly serviceable piece of, of uh, statuary. I mean, it's, it's, I mean I, but there's a, this, without getting into too much dinosaur psychology, I mean, I think Pruitt's whole practice is about lowering expectations for himself in some ways um, and kind of eluding criti- critical criticality. And there's a whole long backstory for that, which we could get into or not get into, which I think actually plays into that. Um, I'd like to hear it. Well, I mean, mean, again, this is dime store psychology, but I mean, obviously he was famously, he famously got in a jam because he put up a show in 1992 with his then partner, Jack Early at at Leo Castelli that was um, widely condemned and was, I actually wrote it down because it was, Jeffrey Deitch called it probably the most reviled, the most embarrassing, and the most disastrous exhibition in the history of the downtown art world. I mean, he was seen to be very racist. It was, was, a ra- it was considered right. to be racist. It was a kind of black, they were trying to sort of mobilize this kind of black exploitation kind of thing, and it fell enormously flat, and he kind of disappeared for years. And when he came back, he was making pandas, and then if you saw this show at... Uh, at Gavin Brown and Macaron, which I actually wrote about, it was like, it really, the questions of quality, questions of craft, all of these things, you, he, uh, there, you can't, can't p- push on those questions with him. And I don't think you can really push, there's not a lot to push on with the Andy Monument. It's like, it's a nice idea. It's, I think it's situated in a good place. But after that, I don't, I don't know where you can really go with it. Yeah, there's, a, there's, 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 it does, for me, the, the most positive thing in what, for me, is an almost entirely negative experience is that um, <laughs> it does highlight um, the fundamental weirdness of public statuary. Um, you, you, you have a city with many, many hundreds of extraordinarily good sculptors in it. Um, uh, you have old-fashioned, boring, but in their day, very well-executed 
uh, academic statues of uh, various generals and personages, uh, right from, you know, from, from George Washington to Mahatma Gandhi. Um, and then you have uh, short-lived uh, sort of interventions put together at enormous uh, expense and bureaucratic rigmarole uh, by various agencies that bring the, the, the fashionable individuals and do um, some, something that's, that's, that's there as an, as an outdoor exhibition. Um, uh, and so you, you sort of wonder, well, what's... And then you have cows and things that are decorated in different colours that uh, uh, pop up uh, from, from time to time. And you have also sort of corporate, uh, you know, uh, sort of low-level kind of corporate interventions where you have or, or well-meaning sort of citizens who will put up... Um, a statue of some famous person. I mean, I'm thinking in London, not New York now, but there's uh, a really execrable... There's a park bench uh, in, in a similar kind of locales, as you've described, where you have um, uh, FDR and Churchill sitting down having a chat on a bench. Um, and um, that's but not no, no Stalin. It's, it should, it, Stalin would have been a bit more amusing. It's not... Uh, it could have been a reconstruction of the... It's sort of Yalta minus one player. Um, but it's... it's uh, you you, you, you realise this, this horrible disconnect between what could be there, what is there, what's never there, and so on and so forth. Um, this is not a... Per, this is not a... It's, it's a lousy statue, isn't it, Colleen? <laughs> is that is that its meaning? Is it saying is it something about Andy's uh, inabilities to? I mean, it makes you it sends you back to Andy. But it's not a Andy. Of reverence. You, I mean, did you, I saw that it's not Andy. It's oh no, that's a spoof. Somebody it's Rob says, Store. No, that's a spoof. It isn't Rob Store. No. No. Oh, I thought that was <laughs> that's real. Robert Store. That's, <laughs> that's what I saw. I saw online a story. I didn't realize it you, was. You have I to was totally the, plausible. The last line of the story tells you it's a spoof. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it made total sense to me that it would be. I mean, yes. it it's, actually. Uh, what's his name? Uh, sh- um, uh, sh- shred. Uh, uh, shrank. Um, who? Help me out. Who? Reeve, the, the studio school guy who starts, who has his blog. I have no clue. No, no. Harag. Harag Veratian. Oh, blog. <laughs> I see. Uh, ran a smooth story <laughs> saying that it's, uh, oh, that's what it's not seeing. Andy, it's Rob Stork. Oh, I see. Um, which is a, it's a way of saying, frankly, it could be anybody. It, well, it could be. I mean, it doesn't particularly look like him. I didn't, you know. It's not very it good likeness of Andy, is it? Well, Okay, tell to, us about. Tell us what you'd like to tell us about. Yeah, Rob I'm going to defer questions of its uh, resemblance to Andy Warhol and its lousiness or not lousiness <laughs> for just a second. Yes. <laughs> I'll get back to them. Just to say that what I thought was interesting about it in relationship to it being Andy Warhol was the the kind of tradition of the you know monumental sculpture as a way of preserving someone. It's all about. Um, you know, something that preserves, something that remains a monument to this person that's no longer present. And I thought that that was really interesting in relationship to Andy Warhol, right, whose, like, most famous quote amongst many famous quotables is the, you know, in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And I feel like that gets quoted more and more recently in relationship to, like, the culture of mini-fame that we're living in with social networking. So the idea of making a monument which is about, like, preserving a physical tribute and resemblance of of someone who is known for um, understanding celebrityness in terms of its transience, I thought was potentially interesting about the piece. 
Um, but having said that, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be the person that argues for why this is a great work of art. I think it was like totally okay. You know, like I went totally and I was like, okay. yeah, it was totally okay. It's like a C. I give it like a solid C. I don't, I mean, I'm glad it was there. Um, in terms of its resemblance to Andy Warhol, I mean, it, something that was interesting for me about the way it was made in relationship to the kind of tradition of monumental sculpture is this sort of like chrome-plated silveriness of it. It made me feel like I was looking at a trinket that had kind of been blown up. Mm. Mm. Um, like Jeff Koon's train. Right. Um, it seemed to have like lower production mm-hmm. <laughs> than Jeff Koon's train, but I guess anything would. Um, so yeah, I mean, in that way it's sort of... Um, like flashiness contrasted in an interesting way with you know the other monumental sculpture that you would see in in the same area like of George Washington I mean there was also something funny about its relationship to the place where the factory was and seeing it not just on Bloomberg's you know little uh, island of fun island of fun but also seeing it next to like and right. you know all the other goofy things that speak to gentrification in New York I mean, I would say, would say one thing. I mean, if you're judging the success of it, I'm, I'm not a good judge of whether or not it, it, mon, as a, as a, uh, an artifact of monumental sculpture, whether, whether or not it looks like and whether or not you like the modeling or whatever. But I will say that when I walked by it three days in a row earlier this week, What's happening is that people are leaving tomato cans with well, little thought, flowers in them on I the bottom of the plant. I assume people are doing it, and if well, that's the case, then I, I would rather measure the success of a public art project uh, on the basis of whether or not it activates some kind of participatory impulse in people, rather than whether or not it's a well-modeled piece of sculpture. Right. Fair enough. That's a, that's a, a useful criterion. Ariella, what sort of experience were you having from it? Well, it's funny, you were talking about quotes that came into your mind, and I kept thinking, I will be your mirror. That was the one that kind of came to me, because I thought, oh, he's sort of the god of all this art. Like, you wouldn't have Max Zepper without him. You wouldn't have Julia Jacquet without him. You wouldn't have, you know, any of it without him. Um, and you sort of see... But, but I, I mean, as a... I thought it was depressing that it was something that the Public Art Fund paid for, because I think they, you know, they have done really provocative things and I mean I don't think I, I, I like I don't want to call it low art low public art or low you know but I like people friendly art in public spaces I mean I love Tom Otterness around oh, New York yeah. and well, you know yeah. you know, even when he's being fun you know there's always something you know trenchant to it and you know and beautiful and this just seemed like gimmicky to me and superficial and you know everything all if you think that Warhol, if you think of him as superficial, then this sort of confirms that. If you, you know, that's it is, I, after all, the anti-monument, right? It's the, it's the, the pun so that's anti, in that is not, uh, is not, I think, accidental. Um, and so maybe that is also about lowering expectations about the quality of the sculpture itself and about that kind of, you know, the sort of maybe potentially the silliness in it. I think he's a really tricky person to, artist to sort of, well, figure, you, figure out how to work. If you set your uh, agenda as being to lower expectations, it's hard to follow. Well, that's my view, and uh, people <laughs> may not agree with me. I mean, I, I don't know if how many of you saw the, the show at, at Macaron and, and Gavin Brown. It was the most art I've ever seen in a gallery show. Uh, it was 
like literally thousands, it could have been hundreds of thousands of works of art, depending on how you counted them, but they were, so you give the guy credit for energy, but there was like walls of printed, you know, printing out his Gmail account and pictures of cats with Hitler mustaches and photographs, wallpaper made out of pans of cinnamon buns and little robots made out of squash cardboard and googly-eyed clocks and things. So it was like this profusion read against this kind of very, um, very sort of low, uh, the, the ambition of the individual pieces and the ambition of the work diverges in a way that I actually think is really interesting to think about because I actually can't think of a way to talk about the artifacts. So I have to fall back on trying to figure out what it is that motivates the practice. I'm kind of amazed that we even have this much to say about it, frankly. I mean, I thought, because I I looked at it and I thought, what are we going to talk about? Like, just seemed so... (laughs) Well, on that note... (laughs) Making me guilty for having more to say about it. Let's have the audience... uh, uh, share with us uh, thoughts. Uh, let's look first at. Um, Sig- let's talk first about uh, uh, Sigur da- Sigurad Dottir, uh, the the show at the Met of the Dollhouse. Uh, uh, re- uh, we call them Dollhouse. The the uh, the the period room uh, variant variations. Um, any any comments on on that piece? We. Yes, uh, if you would wait for the mic, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, you were discussing the color white when you were talking about these rooms, and I thought it, it changed the rooms so much. I saw both the Reitzman room and then, and then the Boisserie rooms of Catherine, uh, and uh, I felt that the French rooms were so very French, and her room painted white, even though it was a replica, felt very Icelandic and almost Swedish. I mean, it took all, it was almost sort of became Swedish Gustavian as mm, opposed right. to French because it was white, although it was... An Ikea makeover for the Roku. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and Any other responses to... I thought it was a ghost room. I'm sorry? A ghost room. Ghost room, right. I thought the, the one with the diminishing um, um, vista, the open one, was more challenging more provocative, um, not not successful in every aspect, but was more disturbing. I felt um, a sense of dizziness, disorientation. Mm. Um, but I thought the challenge that she was facing there in re- the reduction as things went down was remarkable, and the craftsmanship was incredible. Mm. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, so Pruitt, then... Um, the the Andy Monument, the Anti Monument. Um, what what did anyone um, did anyone was it like the uh, antique cast of Rilke that made you change your life? <laughs> okay. Oh, um, I think uh, uh, Pruitt does have a, a sort of a subversive uh, wit and, and humor, and I think one of the things it was touched on briefly that there's a George Washington Monument in Union Square. But in fact, it's a little park of monuments. And three of the monuments are similar in that they are, uh, there's a Lincoln Monument, there's a Lafayette Monument. And facing Andy, walking towards him, there's a Gandhi Monument. So here you have Andy with his uh, little brown bag and his Polaroid camera facing Gandhi 
with uh, his walking stick. <laughs> so I think, you know, he's playing off on what's going on in Union Square also. Right. Great. Well, into the beautiful spring air with all the thoughts uh, that we have for, from this evening's panel and from the whole series. See you all in September, everybody. Thank you very much. No, no, no. <laughs> I was teasing. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank That's you. Funny. It was really fun. It was oh, really, man. really a pleasure.